0: thank you for joining me today. Our guest is someone I've gotten to know over the last few years, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic here in New York. My family was and is fighting for the truth and accountability when it comes to the decisions that were made in the spring of 2020 in New York nursing homes. As many of you know, I lost both of my in-laws as a result of the deliberate, conscious, shocking conduct in the face of a known danger— And my husband, Sean, is suing the former governor, Andrew Cuomo, and his former health commissioner, Howard Zucker, and others in an effort to seek justice for which his parents were deprived. Lee Zeldin was someone that reached out and wanted to help myself and other grieving families who suffered devastating losses of loved ones in elder care facilities. Wanting to uncover the truth when it came to our former governor, Andrew Cuomo, and his administration— and the roles I still believe helped kill thousands of seniors. Lee had a special interest in what was happening in New York, not only because he was born and raised here, went to school, and lives here with his family, but he also ran for governor of New York in 2022. Lee's background is really incredible. Not only does he practice law, but he spent four years on active duty with the U.S. Army, landing in Iraq with an infantry battalion of fellow paratroopers during Operation Iraqi Freedom. In 2007, he came back to New York and transitioned from active duty to the Army Reserve, where he has the rank of lieutenant colonel. In 2010, Lee was elected to the New York State Senate and four years later was elected to the United States Congress, serving on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and Financial Services Committee, as well as four House subcommittees. And although his resume is incredibly accomplished, I know Lee's proudest moments in life are as a father and a husband. Family is everything to him. So please welcome my friend Lee Zeldin to the Janice Dean podcast. Lee Zeldin, thanks for being on the podcast.
1: It's great to be with you, Janice.
0: You were in the building a couple of weeks ago with your daughter, and I was so impressed. I mean, I know that you're a family man. You and I have known each other for a few years now, um, but you know, tell me about that. Tell me about your your life as a as a dad first.
1: Well, I, I have to tell you, my daughter's uh, just finishing their eleventh grade year. They're turning seventeen next month, <laughs> and so much of their upbringing. I was in elected office, Mm -hmm. four years in the state senate, eight years in the house. And it certainly wasn't plan A uh, for me to have this opportunity to spend this extra quality time with them after last year's governor's race. I mean, we were all in it to win that race and we came close. Uh, The best silver lining of it is that we're making up for lost time. Mm and we're having these memories that would not have been made otherwise, and it's just before they go off to college. My daughters were born 14 and a half weeks early. They were less than a pound and a half when they were born, and they went through so much so early in life. Uh, these girls are amazing. They have uh, big goals and dreams for for life ahead. And I'm excited to see what the future holds. I'm just really excited to be a dad and have this opportunity with them until uh, before they graduate and head off to college soon.
0: Mm -hmm. And you have such a supportive family. I mean, you know, to run for governor, I mean, you have led a life of public service. And it's really important to have that backing, that support of not only your wife, but really your whole family. So tell me about that.
1: Absolutely. It would be impossible to be able to do this without the whole family invested part of the decision to run all in with the effort participating. Uh, You need to have morale high on the home front and you can't have resentment that uh, I go off and make a decision to run for governor and it's not a family decision. So when – we were in engaged in all these reelection campaigns to the house or involved in this campaign for governor last year and all the attacks are flying in uh fortunately our family as a strong unit we're able to get through all of that and we had uh, added challenges with last year's race as you know uh, in the middle of campaigning in the bronx with my wife or getting phone calls about a a a gang drive by shooting on my front yard while my my two daughters were at home. Uh, So there were some unique challenges to to last year's campaign in particular. That's just an example of of one of them. And imagine going through challenges like the one I just told you, and I'm involved in a race for governor with no buy-in of the family. I just went out and decided on my own, and mm. they're not invested in decision. So, for uh, a lot of these elected officials, we see at different levels of office, they sacrifice a lot of time away from home. The biggest sacrifice is their family. It, it makes it reminds me of uh, my time that I've spent in the military, where we have people who will mobilize or deploy for long periods of time. They have young families at home it's a sacrifice for that soldier who's going overseas it's even more of a sacrifice for that spouse that's at home taking care of the kids you know working on homework maybe even still employed having to go out grocery shopping and and take care of the other needs being mom and dad uh so having a strong family is important if you want to serve
0: Listen, let's talk about that moment that you heard um, there was something happening on the home front with your two girls home alone. I mean, what goes through your mind?
1: At first, when we're getting the call, we're assessing uh, where we as parents are at the moment because we want to be there with them. At that moment, we realize we're realizing that we're still an hour away, can't come home fast enough. Uh, we certainly are driving in a straight line as fast as we can back home when it happens. That's one aspect of what's going through our mind as parents. Uh, the, the other aspect that's going through our mind is helping our daughters respond, getting through the moments that are ahead. They're alone. They're scared. Fortunately, instinctively, they were really smart in how they responded. As soon as they heard the gunshots and the screaming, it was all playing out about 10 feet, 15 feet or so from where they were at that time. They immediately ran upstairs. They locked themselves in the upstairs bathroom. One called 911. One called my wife and I. Uh, They were scared, but they were responding smartly. Mm. Uh, We wanted to keep them on the phone, talk them through this as much as we can and keep them calm until we get that next update. The all clear didn't come from law enforcement for a while. Uh, And that was another aspect of this. Fortunately, uh, I was with security. They were able to communicate with local law enforcement. So while my wife and I are, are focused on communicating with our daughters, we didn't have to worry about. Being responsible for the multitasking of how do we open up a line of communication directly with law enforcement? Fortunately, we had someone who was with us uh, able to be way on top of it, and also communicate with us about what was going on outside of the house, so that we could communicate that to our daughters mm. and, and help keep them calm. Because when this all first happened, uh. We we didn't know that the girls didn't know whether or not the people screaming were coming for them or we're, were trying to get into the house. Mm-hmm. They're locked upstairs in the bathroom. We don't know if the people are inside of the house trying to get to them. So those initial moments were the scariest because uh, we uh, we we don't know what the nature of the threat is. You know, is this something that is external? to the house or has it now made its way inside? And the one other interesting dynamic here is that when the, the gunshots first rang out, obviously that very much caught our daughter's attention, but that didn't scare them. They thought it was really loud fireworks, which often happens around our house. It was actually the screaming, the yelling right afterwards that really freaked them out uh, because then they realized at that moment, that it was gunshots. It wasn't fireworks. And then, uh, they responded so well after that.
0: Mm. And what did you find out? What was it exactly?
1: It was a, a drive by gang shooting. Uh, they, uh, there were three people who were targeted. Um, they were walking past my, my house when the gunshots run, uh, ring out, they end up coming into my property. Two people are shot and they are laying down. Um, one is laying down underneath my front porch. The other one is laying oh. down next to my front porch. There's a third person who's, uh, who's not shot, who's running around. He's kind of going on and off my porch. So, you know, my daughter's are hearing a lot of that loud movement as the person's coming on and off and back and forth on the porch. Um, My daughters were sitting down at our kitchen table, which was about 10, 15 feet or so from uh, where the two people who were shot were on the ground. There was actually one bullet was found about 30 feet from where they were sitting. So this was really happening all around them. Um, They – uh, they, you at first when they were giving us the update, I was thinking that that maybe this was something that happened, you know, two houses away or down the street. Uh, I didn't realize until we were maybe a few minutes into the conversation where they were more crisply uh, clarifying to us that you know that this was happening right outside of that this actually was happening at the house but yeah what happened was uh there was a driver of a vehicle and uh that person engaged these three people on my property all tied into gang activity
0: mm. and you I would assume you live in a quote unquote safe neighborhood
1: I'm in suburban Long Island. Uh, this is a yeah. this is not Manhattan. This is not New York City. This isn't what we've been seeing of of violence. This isn't you know, Alvin Bragg is a district attorney. This uh, this isn't uh, in an area that is a high crime community. We, we have challenges as really every community has in their own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is not normal. No. How are your girls doing now? They're doing well. Uh, One of my daughters responded better than the other in the longer term to what happened. Uh, One of my daughters was ready to move out of the house coming out of this incident, Mm -hmm. was just done with living at this particular location. She has not complained as much lately But it definitely took a toll on her where it was freaking her out uh, to be at the house. She uh, had some very negative memories uh, that were lasting of what had happened. And our our house basically became a crime scene. I mean, blood on the porch and uh, yellow tape surrounding the house. And it was right after... I had just done a press conference at a crime scene in the Bronx with no idea that uh, the next time that I was going to be standing in front of yellow tape was going to be yellow tape outside of my own house. I'll tell you something that's so crazy about media and you would appreciate this so much. After this happens, we get inquiries from – so many different uh, people in the media, they're trying to do their job and they're trying to put together this story and they're asking for me to come outside to address the media. (laughs) Eventually we decide, okay, we'll do that. We'll come out and answer your questions to address the media. I don't remember if it was the first question. I think it was the first question. I'm not positive. But the NBC reporter immediately starts to criticize me in her question about how how soon it is since the shooting. Don't you think that it's being too political to be out here talking to us about this shooting? <laughs> I was like, man, you just asked me to come out to address you and your camera because you're trying to put together your story. And that's your question. Oh, is my. attacking me for saying, yes, I'll come out and answer your question. So, you know... Um, the media was uh, all over it. But I got to tell you, that's one of the memories that I have that is a much bigger lesson just yes. of, you know, of how of how some in the media can be can be wired. And you'll know, leave it to that reporter from NBC to be asking that question.
0: Oh, my gosh. And we'll be back with more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this now at that moment did you think to yourself i don't know if i can do this i mean you are a public person i mean you were attacked on stage when you were campaigning
1: that stuff just makes me want to campaign stronger wow. and harder it 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 makes me uh want to get out there and and communicate with more voters that we all have to get engaged and involved, uh, it doesn't result in intimidating me out of the the way we're campaigning. I was in the middle of a campaign where I was going into the most dangerous areas of New York. If there was a – if someone got stabbed to death by a knife – You can count on me being the first person to show up to highlight the facts of that particular case and what government needs to be doing differently to make the streets safer and to prevent these types of attacks from happening. I I mentioned to you that my last press conference before what happened at my house had taken place at uh, at, – I'm sorry, had taken place in the Bronx – And it was the Morris Heights subway station. It was uh, the fourth knife attack in 10 hours. It was a fatal knife attack that had just taken place. And this was an area that is so dangerous that people in the community have essentially given up on law enforcement being able to protect them. There was a guy who was at that press conference and at the outside the Morris Heights train station. And after the press conference, I briefly interacted with him and he looked like he had been through a bunch of rough times and fights in his day. And what he communicated to me with a bunch of the media listening in on the conversation uh, was that in that area, they had given up on law enforcement He said, if you want to fight me, you just let me know when and where I'll bring my knife. You bring my you bring your knife and we'll just settle it between us. And it didn't come across like he was talking a big game or acting tough. It came across like he had done that before. Mm. And after what had happened then at my house, my response wasn't, okay. I need to stay away from these areas. It was we need to get more into these areas, more frequently communicating with these voters who are you know, far more regularly impacted by crime than communities like where I live. Uh, so it motivated me even more.
0: Mm. Do you think that's your service in the army, too, that kind of gives you that? I mean, that's brave, Lee.
1: You know, I, I would say I I remember at one point I, I was in Iraq Uh, I am in a place called uh, Al-Tabi village and we're on a a foot patrol and there was really heavy traffic and we're walking down a street with, with people who are all around us um, driving the opposite direction. All I remember thinking as we're walking, you know, really only takes one of them to be, uh, you know, part of the, the, the threat, uh looking for a, an opportunity to engage uh at close conf- uh, at, at at close combat and be able to inflict harm upon uh, our unit and th- there's just something mentally when y- you have to focus on accomplishing the mission just the way that we're wired we can't allow that to Get in our heads in a way that compromises our our ability to do what we need to do. I, you know, I would say a lot of my military training um, early on, uh, and then applied in preparation for, or uh, in fact, uh, being in you know, real world uh, conflict. It, it just gets your mind wrapped in a way where you can't allow these circumstances these potential threats you can't allow risk to prevent you from leading preventing you from doing what you you need to do to accomplish the mission i mean i've, I've going back to childhood i mean i was uh, I was a, a black belt. growing up, I won once the the world championships uh, in sparring when I was, uh, gosh, I must have been about twelve or thirteen or fourteen at that time. I don't remember exactly what my age was. Uh, I would say that a lot of uh, a lot of my training through life, starting off, uh, I would say. Uh, with my my taekwondo experience, uh, but then also the military experience, it just kind of wired me in a way in, the he- in my head where when I'm out campaigning, if you tell me that there's a place that I should not go, that I don't belong, it makes me want to go there. I kind of feel like that's where I need to be because that's probably where no one else is. Mm. It's probably an area where no one's been in a long time. So what we did during our campaign, and I think it, I think it helped. I mean, listen, New York is 22% Republican. We got just under 50% of the vote, and and I think getting into these heavily Democratic areas, getting into these heavy crime areas, uh, these very abandoned communities, I think was a big part of people flipping. If you as a candidate can convince one of your supporters to come out, they're the type of voter who may or may not come out, but if they do come out, that's one vote that that they're going to vote for you. You can count that as one vote. If you go out and you communicate with somebody who is coming out no matter what, but if they come out, they're going to vote Democrat and you're successful in getting them to vote Republican That actually counts as two votes because it's also one less vote on the other side. Mm. So I would say that our style of campaigning, uh, it it did end up uh, resulting in less time for us to be able to spend with um, our own supporters to try to get out the vote of people who if they come out, they're voting for us. But we flipped a lot of votes. I mean inside New York City, we won the Asian-American vote. Uh, We did great with the Dominican vote, the Orthodox Jewish vote, and the list goes on. These are Democrat constituencies, but we flipped these votes, uh, and I think that that Uh, played a big part in us being able to get as close as we did.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I know from my experience, I knew a lot of uh, Democratic voters who lost loved ones in nursing homes that flipped because you were the one to go out there and say, hey, I'm going to speak on behalf of all of these families who want accountability. And that brings me, you know, to how we sort of met each other and, and you wanting to help not only my family, but, you know, the Arbini family, who are very close to me, lost their father, Norman, after contracting COVID in a nursing home. And you've been very close with, you know, families going forward because we really haven't gotten investigations, accountability. Uh, Kathy Hochul has, you know, promised us that at some point there is going to be one, but I don't believe her. Um, it's sort of gotten shoved under the rug. And you came out with an op-ed this past week. Um The title is Feds Hire New York Health Czar Who Defended Deadly Nursing Home Order, and that's Howard Zucker. And I'm just so appreciative of you continuing to try to keep this in the headlines when most people have forgotten.
1: And for the families who lost their loved ones, they'll never forget. Mm. They're they're not going to go away. And I think that some of the politicians who... Uh, find the facts to be very inconvenient for themselves politically and they really want everybody to just move on and not talk about this anymore, they might not understand that these families are never going to forget and they're never going to go away. Mm -hmm. They will keep fighting for the truth and accountability uh, and they want justice. It's been three years since uh, Howard Zucker testified in front of a joint legislative hearing, with a fantastic opportunity to be able to clear up anything that might have been inaccurate, and uh, give give your excuse, allow the the public and the legislature and the media to um, decide what they think about your excuse, but at least go forward. Um, with somewhat of an attempted reset and instead what the strategy was, you saw that the Cuomo administration and Howard Zucker being the commissioner of health at the time leading this, they doubled down and tripled down in lies. Mm. So three years ago this week, there were uh, – th- there was this incredible opportunity for the state to come clean but there was a an election that was coming up in a few months and Cuomo was at this a higher popularity he's trying to lock down an over 5 million dollar self congratulatory book deal there was now talk of a department of, of justice investigation starting at the federal level for so many different reasons the Cuomo administration decided you know what i'm not it, we're not going to come clean we're just going to lie even more, mm-hmm. and that's the wrong answer. Howard Zucker has—he you know—he fell up upwards into a senior position at the CDC. I got to tell you, talking about anniversaries, this is what happened three years ago, but exactly two years ago, Kathy Hochul becomes governor and sits down with a bunch of families. Yep. N- you know, you, you're you intimately. Yeah, you're intimately familiar with uh, with where I'm going with this. And in that room, promised an investigation and accountability and then crickets until May of 2022, August of 2021. She sits down, looks you all in your eyes. It was a session that that gave hope as misleading as it was. There was a, a a moment where there was a belief that maybe something was going to come of this. May of 2022 is the next update where Hochul says the investigation will launch. And they announce that there will be a first update in six months. <laughs> Everyone does the math and realize, oh, I see. So the first update will come after the election. We see what you're doing here. Mm. But now it's August of 2023. And here you and I are having this conversation and we still haven't received the the results of what was promised two years ago. It is so wrong. And these families will not forget.
0: It's so true. And I know you brought up this little nugget, too, that is very concerning. But the Cuomo administration were giving friends and family covid tests two friends and family while nursing homes could not get any of them and i think that actually is a crime
1: uh there it was it was so criminal what was happening it was a misappropriation of resources on so many different levels the tests are done for the the Cuomo-Hocul administration family and friends at private residences it's not that these individuals had to travel somewhere. It's not that they had to wait in a line. That they, There was a test waiting for them, but they would have to stand in line for a bit. Mm. No, they these tests were done at their private residence. Who did them? Was it some privately contracted person coming in to do the test? No, it was state health department officials being sent there, being pulled away from whatever else – They were supposed to be doing that day to go to these private residences. Now, were these tests then sent to a lab and put in line like everyone else who had to, as you remember, uh, were waiting maybe a week Mm -hmm. or more for their test results? No. These tests were given front of line access at the state laboratory. There's even more to this story Of what went wrong with the misappropriation, with the misallocation of resources uh, to give this VIP COVID testing treatment to family and friends, it was so wrong, and you're not seeing outrage by the Democrats who are in power right now up in Albany. Um, and it's it, it's unfortunate because you know when you have. When you have one party ruled, you lack balance. You lack that check within the executive branch and legislative branch inside of that process. And fortunately, you're seeing some Democrats who have courageously been speaking out to try to do something about others within their own party. It's really easy to criticize the other party. It's more challenging there's a little bit more heartburn, internal pressure that you'll receive when you're criticizing your own party. But you have um, some elected officials like uh, Ron Kim, uh, state assemblyman, who also lost loved ones as part of this nursing home scandal, um, who have been out there calling for uh, people in his own party to step up and do the right thing. And I would just say kudos to those who are who are up in Albany who are saying this is unacceptable. And it doesn't matter. This isn't about partisanship. This isn't about politics for the families who lost their loved ones. This is not red, blue. This is not Republican, Democrat, independent. This is about truth. And the truth does not have a color. The truth does not have a party affiliation when it comes to justice and accountability here let the facts be as 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 however uh, it is found as the result of a responsibly done investigation learn the lessons so that if there ever is a next time even if the next time uh, you know might be a little bit different maybe it's not covid maybe it's something else we're not repeating the same mistakes but for those who are in power right now and and they're utilizing their power to try to bury this, to make it go away, hoping that no one will ever talk about it again. They couldn't be more wrong. And they don't deserve the power that they have right now. But it's never too late to do the right thing. I would encourage anyone out there who is finally, you know, hitting their epiphany that this will never just go away. It's not too late to step up and to provide the answers that these families are looking for and to help provide the justice that these families are demanding.
0: Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. Well, listen, I appreciate you and through tragedy, you know, you came into our lives and as somebody that wanted to help and continues to, you know, try to beat the drum and make some headlines to, to make sure that we don't forget. So I appreciate you. Tell me about the future ahead of you. Uh, would you run for governor again?
1: I feel like Kathy Hochul is doing a terrible job that New York needs Balance in Albany um, th- that we have New Yorkers every day hitting their breaking point and fleeing that uh, whether it 's economic policy or energy policy, whether it's crime and public safety as uh, an even uh, even more of an emerging issue not just in New York but in, uh, New York City but in other uh, cities and communities other parts of the state. Uh, there's a desperate need for new leadership, so there's going to be a governor's election in 2026, and with the way things are going, we absolutely must elect a new governor here in the state. You know, as for whether or not uh, I'll be the, uh, the the candidate stepping up to uh, to to take out Kathy Hochul, uh, we'll see. It's a decision that is. In the future, it's not a decision for today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do believe that change is still very much needed. It's even more needed now than it was a year ago. Uh, and in the meantime, I'm going to continue to stay active. I started a a charity called Zeldin Cares. We're involved in many different projects to help underserved communities. Uh, I'll continue to to stay engaged with uh with media appearances and weighing in with op-eds as you know um we just did over the course of uh this past week with the New York Post op-ed on on Howard Zucker and and COVID. Uh I'll continue to deliver speeches. I'm about to head upstate for Uh, travel, campaigning with a whole bunch of local candidates who are running in this November's election. That'll be going on over the course of this next week. Uh, So we want to continue to stay engaged and help. And I believe in service I continue to serve in the military. As far as that next big decision as to whether or not to run for governor in 2026, may not be a decision for today, but it's Mm -hmm. something that I, I will uh, plan on uh, very seriously thinking about in the future.
0: Well, I appreciate that. I think I think a lot of New Yorkers do as well, because even though you didn't win, you really did change things. I mean, there, w- there was a big shift in New York, a very blue state. For, so for that, you must feel like there was some success.
1: Yeah, for one, Nancy Pelosi isn't the Speaker of the House anymore. Uh, New York did its part with the House races, If uh, New York had a status quo election for the House, we would have sent six Republicans as part of our delegation. Instead, uh, our delegation in New York, which now has 26 House seats, uh, includes 11 Republicans instead of six. Uh, Four seats flipped. There are six uh, freshman Republicans in districts that Joe Biden won. There was a really big shift in New York. Uh, due to uh, last year's race, uh, the the top of the ticket, which I was honored to lead, uh, we did our part campaigning really hard, campaigning on issues, starting early and taking nothing for granted. And fortunately, there are new elected officials serving in the state legislature, new elected officials serving in the House um, who are there doing good work because – uh, of us running as a strong team, and the voters recognizing uh, the, the the need to to do their part to help flip control of the House of Representatives. You know, New York is looked at as a blue state, but if you were to take out Manhattan, Queens, Bronx, uh, and Brooklyn, just for a split second, and you looked at a map of New York, it's a pretty red state. Hmm. Um, But those four counties, which are part of New York, are very, very blue. And uh, those four very blue dots uh, as part of uh, a a state that has over 60 counties uh, ends up tilting this state in the other direction. I'll I'll say something else that I think has longer term consequences is that a lot of the voters who uh, were longtime Democratic voters, but they voted for us. They were changing their views a little bit more permanently than what we've seen sometimes in the past where a party is casting a protest vote against Mm. their own party Mm -hmm. and it's a one-time thing. I think that a lot of these Asian American voters in New York City focused on crime and education and the Dominican voters I was talking about earlier and the Orthodox Jewish voters I was discussing earlier. And that list goes on. I I think for a lot of them, uh, they continue to feel very strongly about what they were thinking about last year as they were deciding to vote for us. And I think we'll see that uh, with their votes in the elections coming up. Uh, with all that being said, uh, Republicans who are out there should not take this for granted at all. Uh, you need to work extremely hard to earn the support. You need to show up and keep showing up. And the message for the Democrats who are out there is you know, it's not too late for them to earn back these supporters, but people don't want to be gaslit, told that. Crime isn't an issue. That the economy's never been stronger. You know that the energy policy has never been smarter. That's not going to work, nor should it. Uh, I think that that uh, that there's a real opportunity here for people with both parties who are candidates uh, to go out there and and work for these voters, but uh, for the and these votes. But don't think that what happened last November was some one shot vote that was just a protest vote and these democratic voters just came back home the next day. That has not happened for many of them.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, listen, I appreciate your time. I've, I've appreciated getting to know you over the last few years and I want to thank you for your service as well. Um, You know, you are somebody that has a serving heart. I have that in my family. My husband's the same way. And there is truly something that's very special about that. So, um, so thank you, Lee Zeldin, and uh, to be continued.
1: Yeah, thank you for the service of your family. Uh, It's great to get to know you, and I would also say that I and I've seen it firsthand. There are so many other families uh, who have really been um, channeling their their energy, their emotion. Uh, their frustration, their anger, their sadness, uh, in a very positive way through your activism. Uh, so, uh, on on their behalf, and I know that you've heard it from so many of them directly. Thank you for what you do.
0: Well, I'm not stopping. You know that about me.
1: <laughs> no, I, nor nor should you, and uh, and that's an important message to uh, to those out there who have wanted this to just uh, magically disappear without any accountability, is that people like Janice Dean are never going away. Mm. They will keep fighting. And uh, it's with the clearest sense of purpose. So thank you for what you do.
0: Absolutely. Lee Zeldin, thank you again. I know I've taken a lot of your time, but I appreciate it. It was a really fascinating conversation.
1: You got it. Thank you, Janice. Take care.
0: Uh, You too. Thanks again to Lee Zeldin for coming on the podcast today. I'm really grateful for Lee's support and his friendship over the years. I look forward to working with him and other leaders from both sides of the aisle to help us continue to find truth and accountability for the thousands of families whose loved ones died tragically from contracting COVID in their elder care facilities. You've heard me say it before, but if we don't have a thorough investigation into what happened not only here in New York, but other states during the pandemic with reckless, deadly decisions that were made, this will happen again. We owe it to ourselves and our families to keep demanding answers and find the truth. Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at JaniceDean on Twitter or FNC on Instagram, or you can rate this podcast.